Hey folks, thanks for downloading, subscribing, and listening. This is the LLA Show. Live life aggressively. Sincere Hogan, that's me, Mike Marlon on the other line. What's going on, dude? Oh, I'm doing good, man. I'm excited about our guest today. It's a good friend of mine, and we'll get to him in a second. But I just wanted to give a quick thank you to Charles Poliquin. He was on our show last week, last episode. Mm-hmm. And not only is Charles always a great guest, wealth of information, gives us plenty of time, he's one of the few guests that goes out of his way to really promote the episode. I mean, he right. lit it up on Facebook, Twitter, et cetera, which we can see by the numbers. I mean, right. I woke up this morning, I was like, whoa. <laughs> I was like, someone actually responded to that email I sent about promoting the episode and, and took heed to it. I can't tell you how many guests we've had oh. who, who, don't, who don't do anything to promote the episode. And they're listening right now. Yeah, you. You. <laughs> yeah. You. Yeah. yeah. And guess what? Here's the thing. Now that you're feeling all crappy about it, here's something you can do. Why don't you go ahead and promote it right now? Make up for lost time. You know who you are. Yeah, you, buddy. And but but sometimes, sometimes if, I do, if I don't ask them, then it's on me, right? Because sometimes right. people get busy, you just don't think about it. But when I consciously make the decision to say, hey, man, here are the show notes that Sincere put together. Please post this on your platforms. And then they don't do it. What's that? Right. <laughs> That's them basically saying, nah, I want to leverage your audience, but I don't want you to leverage my audience. Exactly. You know, that's basically what that means. Oh, man. You got to love this industry. Yeah. yeah. It's mainly fitness professionals who fall into this category. Exactly. All right. <laughs> uh, right. So, okay. Yeah, so we have a great guest today who is not only going to help you make more money, but hold on to it. And the reason why we're bringing him on the show is self serving. We want you to make more money so you have less, less excuses to support us. <laughs> so we expect to see the Patreon numbers go way up after this episode. And I expect to see a huge spike in sales. Hey, man. I need to sell out of those. The remaining Sharia doors that I have here before I move on to those exclusive ones that I'm having for 2016. So let's go ahead and clear this out right now. And one good thing by having our guest on today, also, Mike, because tis the season to be a broke ass. You know, <laughs> we're heading into the holiday season right now, and most people are driven by freaking guilt. And guilt is the wrong thing to have when it comes to spending money. Because a lot of times you're spending money on crap that nobody gives a damn about, but you feel bad if you don't get them and, and, something. And people you don't give a damn about. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's like the whole obligatory. It's like, yeah, I got to buy some gifts for my coworkers. Oh, you mean the ones you don't like? Exactly. <laughs> like, like seriously. The ones so, who are always talking smack behind their back at the water cooler. It, it, those guys. Yeah. Exactly. Okay, go ahead, buy those gifts. Exactly. So yeah, man. So this is this is our gift to you in the holiday season right now. Because you don't have to buy that crap anymore. You can do better things with your money, and that's what I guess is going to help you figure out right now. Yeah, our guest is Rohit Kalra, and he's a financial expert. I've actually known Rohit since, I mean, for almost 20 years now. I've known him for a long time. Wow. And he's he's a really <laughs> sharp guy. He's a guy that even when he was 17, 18, he, he, had, he had money invested in mutual funds. <laughs> you know, he's reading books on how to acquire wealth, how to get wealthy as a teenager. So this <laughs> is a guy who was way ahead of his time. Rohit, how you doing, buddy? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, man, it's great to have you on here. And you're not only are you an accountant, but you help people with their financial profiles and helping them hold on to money, grow their wealth. Correct. Absolutely. I have a CPA firm here in Fairfax and a wealth management firm as well. Today, my objective is to try to steer clear of sort of obscure topics that right. folks can't necessarily relate to. So I'm not going to talk about, you know, estate planning or insurance or anything like that, but instead I'm going to focus on universal financial strategies that hopefully everybody that listens to this can get something really valuable from. Oh, that sounds great. Awesome. 
So let me start from the beginning here. I used to skip this step when talking to folks, and I realized that we really need to start really all the way at the beginning uh, because I've seen this in practice so many times. And a lot of what I'm going to share today are actual insights from working with real clients over the last 15 years. And so these are case studies from working with literally hundreds of clients over a long period of time and, and things that everybody can learn from. So <clears throat> where I'd like to start with, is with a concept called net cash flow. And I illustrate this example by sort of showing something that's actually that I've seen in practice, which is what do these two individuals have in common? So I'll give you an example. Uh, an individual that makes about $30,000 a year who spends about $30,000 a year in comparison <laughs> to an individual that makes about $3 million a year who also similarly has lifestyle expenses and expends $3 million a year. Right. <laughs> Seems sort of uh, self-evident, but I see this over and over again in practice. And the answer is that those two people have – an impaired ability to make financial progress. Right. And again, it seems so straightforward, but the concept of net cash flow precedes everything that we're going to talk about today because when we get into investing later on, it's all predicated on whether or not an individual actually has something left over at the end of the month to actually funnel towards some sort of investment. So what is net cash flow? Net cash flow is simply all your inflows less all your outflows. So basically, your inflows would be a combination of uh, your income and assets uh, that you own that would increase your inflows because those assets would also throw off some income potentially. And that would be uh, all your inflows in your household versus minus your expenses and liabilities that would decrease uh, those inflows. So those would be your outflows. So when looking at net cash flow, the first thing that folks want to do is optimize their net cash flow. And so there's only two ways really to do that, or three ways actually. Either you increase your income and your assets, or you decrease your expenses and liabilities, or you do both. And again, I can't stress how often I see this uh, because it doesn't matter how much money you make. You know, if you're making four or five hundred thousand dollars a year or forty or fifty thousand dollars a year, I see this regularly. The the, the key takeaway here is that You've got to focus on what's left over if you want to make financial progress. At some point, your expenses need to be less than your income. You've yeah, got to, to a large extent, it's more what you keep than what you're making. Right. Right? Exactly. So, I mean, that's that's a, like Jim Rohn says, you make $10,000 a month, but you're spending 11000 <laughs> Now you're in a deficit that's accumulating each month. That's exactly right. That's ex yeah, that's exactly right. And you know, one of the things I like to share on this topic and it's not, you know, sexy. It's not anything that's some sort of cool ninja trick. I'm, I'm not in the business of selling books, so I don't have any, you know, clever tricks to share with people. <laughs> and you know, basically, it all boils down to if you fix your your if your income is fixed, as an example, the easiest way to increase your net cash flow is to decrease your expenses. And and what does that mean? What does that involve in real life in practical terms? Really, what it means is you've got to curb some of those material desires even if it's temporary you've got to you've got to deal with that issue and so basically you know what what that translates to effectively is delayed gratification you can't have everything you want right away and you know an analogy would be you know using a using a fitness analogy 
at some point, if you want to create a, cal- a calorie deficit, you've simply just got to push away from the table. I mean, it's just right. as simple as right. that. Yeah. And and this is no different. And so when I see this in practice, you know, we, we talk about this issue, and folks should listen to and reflect on this issue. The question to ask yourself is, what can I do to increase my income? If I've optimized that, what can I do to decrease my expenses and then move forward from there so you can optimize your net cash flow? You've got to have uh, as much left over at the end of each month. And once you've done that, now we can sort of move on to everything else we're going to talk about, which is you know, investing in financial strategies. And- Seems that a lot of people always focus on making more but not keeping more, right? So they, they, they'll listen to what you have to say and go, okay, my, I need to make more money. But then what happens is you end up spending more money. It's kind of right. like people on a, in the, using a fitness analogy again is people push away from the table, but because they're eating less, they have less energy, and now their activity level drops. <laughs> you know, so, that, so it's the whole thing balances out. But uh, I think that that's where there's often a disconnect. Here's the question, yeah. though, Rohit. Like, how do you when you're dealing with clients when you tell them this? Because trust me, right now I know so many people are listening. They're like, okay, that's just common sense. They're, yeah, that makes a lot of sense, but it, it still doesn't register. Just like eating a bunch of crappy food, we realize that okay, it's going to make you very unhealthy. Blah blah. People are like, yeah, that makes sense, but they still do it. So yeah. my thing is, how do you when you're talking to your clients, how do you get into that psychology and really instill this into their mind and really help them change their mindset about how they view money? Because a lot of times no matter how how what kind of good intentions we may have as far as increasing our income and living a better lifestyle and just getting the hell out of the poorhouse and we're not trying to get in there we have these issues that a lot of times are not even tapped into that we have deeply ingrained in our brains about how we view money just like how people are with food a lot of times you know a lot of times no matter how hard they try how many diets do how many times they work out something happened psychologically to them, you know, whether they had the parent that force fed them like, hey, you better clean that plate, I'm gonna whoop your ass. You know, you know they're starving children in Africa, they could be eating that food, you know, or you know, or there was a kid that pushed the little girl down in second grade in the sandbox and called her a fat ass. You know, back then and here she is thirty years later, she still has problems with food. How do you help right. people with that mindset with money as well? Because the same things happen, you know, in our households with our parents, how you know, how we view money as well. Well, I'll tell you one thing that works well uh, for me in terms of working with my client base. Because our client base is mostly business owners, Mm -hmm. uh, I've spent 15 years working almost exclusively with business owners. I tend to give them an analogy that relates to business. And and so some folks might be able to relate to this uh, and some folks might not. But basically what I tell them is I said when it comes to managing your net cash flow in your life, in your household, you should treat your household like you do a business. And so the analogy, they can relate to it as business owners because astute business owners, what they typically will do is they tend to be liberal or aggressive with those investments that will make them money. But they tend to be very aggressive at the same time in terms of keeping their expenses as low as possible. And they will only allow into their their businesses those expenses that have some justification or rationale for somehow making them money or it has to be necessary and they will ruthlessly cut everything else. And I think that word ruthlessly cut is important because you've got to get intense about this if you want to make financial progress. There has to be some level of intensity with respect to you know the approach that you take if you really want to manage your expenses aggressively. And, and I don't tell people to 
get rid of all expenses such that it robs you of current enjoyment in life. No, but there are expenses which are you know necessary. There's expenses that are unnecessary. There's expenses that 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 rob you of of uh, they don't make you money. And there's expenses out there that you can introduce into your business that do make you money. They're I'm actually. Curi- I'm curious, Rohit, what are uh, what are some of the unnecessary expenses that you find are very common? Well, in 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 personal or in business. Uh, let's let's say let's start let's off with personal, personal and then personal. and then business as well. You know, one of the things that I see, it, and it's as difficult for for many people to deal with because it's a, it's an emotional sort of uh, response and it's an right. emotional decision. But housing is a big one. Yeah. Yes. And, you know, housing is a big one. So basically, you know, when it comes to housing, people generally get emotional about the type or uh, of house that they want and the amount that they're willing to spend. On housing, I think they also feel that they sh- that they need to be a homeowner to be successful in America. Like that's the American dream. If I don't own a house, then I'm not as good as my neighbors. Will exactly, do. I'm not American exactly. enough. <laughs> you know. Yeah, I'm gonna actually be talking about that, dispelling that myth here uh, in a little bit uh, right. when, when we get to that. Sure. But you know, when, when we talk about housing and we talk, it, it basically it boils down. A lot of it boils down to social comparison. Right? Yeah, no and doubt. Especially in today's sort of. Um, environment where everybody's on Facebook and, and dealing social media if you will and they're and they're effectively what they're doing is they're subconsciously comparing themselves to others and when and because that messaging is so much more powerful now than it used to be where you know unless you actually met somebody and compared notes you didn't really have uh, a reason to compare yourself to others. It wasn't always top of mind. Now it's always top of mind. Somebody goes out and buys a new car. It's on Facebook. Uh, somebody's out and buying a big house. It's on Facebook. And <laughs> other people are seeing what their friends and family are doing, and they feel like they have to, you know, keep up with that, if you will. Right. And that just leads to, you know, falling behind financially because you can't compete with someone who's willing to finance and take out a loan. Or take out a, a, a lease uh, that, no matter how unfavorable the terms may be, you don't know what the terms are behind the scenes in terms of what they're doing to acquire those things. Right. And so it doesn't make sense to, to, to keep up with that. Yeah. So for yes. all we know, they could have a money money laundering business on the side. <laughs> well, like know? I say, like Instagram, for instance, you always see all these girls on these vacations in Dubai, but then you never see the sugar daddies that's financing those trips to Dubai. So don't get all excited about that. Like, oh man, I need to go to Dubai now. Well, are you willing to do what she did to get on to go to Dubai? <laughs> so yeah. To think about that. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> well, let me let me change gears and talk about sort of the next step, which is now that you have first optimized your net cash flow and really put some thought into it, okay, and, and so that you're not wasting money every month on things that you don't want or need. Now you've got some money to invest in. You've got something. You've got something that you can use to funnel towards investment. So now then the question becomes. Well, what should I be investing in? You know, what, where, where can I, what can I do with these seeds that I want to plant so that they will bear the most fruit down the road? And so, before I answer that question in the context of investing, because I hear most financial planners and and other financial advisors, they go straight into you know the the stock market, the bond market. I'm not going to do that right away. I'm not going to do that because I want to sort of frame this uh, and share a framework with with folks that. I think will really serve them uh, throughout their lifetimes. Now, it's a general rule of thumb. There's always exceptions, so I want to throw out that caveat. But if they adhere to it, 
you really can't go too far wrong. And so let me share this framework with you. It's a little complicated, but I'm going to define it and break it down so it makes a lot of sense. So the framework that I've come up with over the years is where where should you attempt your investment discretion? So now that you've got something to invest, where should you attempt to, to use your discretion in terms of where to put that money? So to their detriment, what I find is people often spend their time and effort you know, attempting investment discretion on the wrong things. And we're going to talk about that more, things like stock picking and market timing and other things that don't really serve them well in the long run uh, because they could instead be focusing their intention on other things that will serve them better. So here's my framework. You should attempt to invest. Uh, you should attempt to exercise investment disc- discretion based on the degree of liquidity of that that item that you're looking at, that option, that option, that alternative that you're looking at, and the amount of control that you can exert over it. So let me define that degree of liquidity. In this example, would be the efficiency of the market or the ease at which you can buy or sell something, and the amount of control is just that. You know, to the extent that you can apply your intellect or your own resourcefulness to that endeavor. So let me give you some concrete examples about what I mean with this, and then I think it's going to make a lot of sense. So the first thing is, what I tell people is, you should focus on investing in yourself. And that might be surprising to hear some sort of financial advisor talk about that and not talk about the uh, the capital markets. But when you when you think about that as a primary investment, before anything else, before looking at anything else, and we're going to talk about business, we're going to talk about real estate, we're going to talk about capital markets. Before I get what what people need to realize is that when we talk about investing in yourself, well, let's look at my framework. Liquidity is a non-issue, and the amount of control that you can exert, well, you can exert the maximum amount of control over yourself. And so this is this is talking about really taking any excess cash you have and investing it in things like uh, courses that might move you forward. It doesn't have to be traditional education. It could be self-education, but unique opportunities that can basically help you improve on yourself. It might be something uh, where you can improve your technical skills. It might be something to improve your marketing ability, your marketing skills, your sales skills, any sort of skill that you can invest in yourself because what you'll find when you look back over a long time horizon is that the returns that you can generate from investing in yourself tend to be higher than almost anything else and so well, I, I mean I, I definitely agree with that just to hmm. cut in for a second because yeah, I, mean, I, I started I, I got into one kettlebell of course launched a six-figure income for me for many years as a kettlebell instructor right oh. it all started with that one course I took in 2002 the RKC hmm. certification I mean that's not the reason I made all that money but that was the starting point that allowed me to go down that path and then I took the money I made from that and invested it back into myself, learning other skills such as hormone optimization, which led to me doing a lecture series that was very lucrative. And then I studied nutrition supplements and how to design them and got into that business. And every time I launch and every time I research something which leads to me launching a new product, that ends up creating in a revenue source that is way more than what I would make in the market. So I, I agree 100% with what you're saying is that you can never invest too much in yourself. I think the key is is you don't want to be someone who's addicted to taking courses and never does anything right. with the information. Yeah, that, that's, a lot, that's a lot of people. They just go to Tony Robbins seminars. They, they may even come to courses such as what Sincere and I teach, but they don't do anything with it. Yeah, implementation is the key. You've got to take action. Uh, but you should what I what I see and the reason I mentioned this this item before I talk about anything else is 
what I see is that folks sometimes stop investing in themselves. In other words, you know, once once they graduate from from college or whatever professional Absolutely. program they went to, yeah. they mm-hmm. think that's the end. And that, <laughs> right. That's, that's you can be further. Uh, from the truth there. That's well, just well, I the think beginning. a lot of people have a negative association with education, right? Because they go to college and they they push through and then they're like, oh, thank God I graduated. I'm never reading a book again. <laughs> you know, it's like that right. kind of mentality, right? Or, or they do their PhD and they're like, forget it. I don't want to learn anything ever again. <laughs> like, right? My yeah. brother always has a theory about that, right? Because both of my parents are PhDs. And, <laughs> and you know, my dad can't turn the DVD player on to save his life, right? <laughs> Roger's always like, you know, these, these guys just don't want to learn anything new because they burned out that learning process so severely by doing their PhDs that once they finish that, they're like, finally, <laughs> it's over. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and, and to sort of dovetail to the next idea, just kind of piggybacking off of that, the, the next item that I tell folks in this sort of uh, this tier, if you will, is once you've maximized that and you've got a trajectory that you're, you know, constantly improving yourself, you know, introducing new skills and new ideas, because one good idea could change the trajectory of, of everything, whether it's yeah. in your business or your career. Um, the next area to focus on is is just that business and your career. And so before we talk about real estate or capital markets, you know, we can't skip talking about investing in your business. And there's a good example I like to share um, on this topic because uh, we work with a lot of small business owners and, and dentists and physicians and uh, other professionals. And basically, you know, I, I, I pick on dentists for a minute because I give an example and I say, you know what? Let me give you an example of two dentists and they both graduate on the same day from the same school and they had the exact same training and they're the exact same age. And then you fast forward 10 or 15 years later and take inventory of where they are and what they're doing and how much money they're making. And if they both started in the same place, why is it that one is you know doing very, very well, maybe somewhere in the six, eight, nine hundred thousand dollar a year range, and the other one is still struggling financially? Why is that? How could that be if they have the same license from the same school and they started on the same day? What led to this disparity and this disparity is an example i'm not picking on dentists i'm just using them as an example you can substitute in anybody here uh, because it's true for any any field if you I think, will i think one dentist probably did a bunch of unnecessary operations and maybe the other one didn't. <laughs> <laughs> you know what what i see when i look at this and i've seen these case studies in practice is when the, the, the dentist that's doing really, really well, once they maximize sort of this invest in yourself concept, they were very liberal and aggressive in investing in their business from a from a standpoint of investing in training and implementation of, for example, marketing, uh, in their case presentation, in their financial management, in their management of people, and some of these other factors that you don't necessarily learn explicitly in dental school, but they're willing to make investments in their own business. And so this is something that if you go back to my framework where I talked about where should you attempt investment discretion based on the degree of liquidity and the amount of control you can exert. Well, when you look at businesses in general, 
there is a issue with liquidity because if you want to buy or sell a business, if you want to sell a business, for example, it's challenging. You can't just go online and press a button and say, hey, sell on right. the stock. You've got to find a business broker perhaps or you have to find a buyer yourself. It's a process. And so liquidity is an issue. And the amount of control you can exert, well, presumably if you're the sole owner, you can exert a lot of control or even, let's say, a 50% owner, you can exert a lot of control. So you should funnel that time and energy to optimize your business. And it just makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, it's sort of like, it almost seems like it's common sense, but I see this in practice all the time where people don't necessarily have a framework like this. They don't know what to do with that extra cash that's sitting around and they're just stockpiling it. It might be parked in, in a money market. Well, what would be an example of, of, a, of a good investment in your business, right? Because I think a lot of people think, okay, I'm going to blow a lot of money on advertising and marketing. Right. And I've always found that to be a negative. Anytime I've blown a lot of money in advertising, it's never worked out well. But when I've done stuff such as Sincere and I launching the show, for example, that was an investment in both of our respective businesses. And that's been very successful. Anytime I invest in developing more content on my website or making my, my website more seamless, easier to use, so it's easier to purchase something. Yeah. I would actually categorize those under the umbrella of advertising and marketing, you know, right, whether it's right. content creation or whether it's uh, generating, uh, launching a podcast. Good point. Working on that. I would actually put that under the umbrella of advertising and marketing. You can definitely waste a lot of money on the wrong advertising and marketing, but you can do some things uh, on the right avenues that, that might not cost a lot of money, but uh, use your resourcefulness and your time and energy and focus on the things that work. Until you test a lot of those things out, you really don't know what is going to be a winner versus what might not be a winner. You've got to test it. But advertising and marketing, since you brought it up, I think is actually a an important sort of awareness to have. And I can tell you this from having looked at P&Ls and balance sheets of you know literally hundreds of businesses over the last 15 years. What I often see, and this is, this is definitely a, an important insight. There's no question about this insight. When we look at financials and really analyze them and interpret them, what we often see among those businesses that really rise to the top and are leaders in their market, in their geographic area, over time, as their wherewithal to spend increases, as they become more successful, those that are really doing the testing and figuring out, okay, where can I spend within the advertising and marketing sort of bucket, if you will, and then they make those investments because they're consistently increasing their customer acquisition costs over time. Those are the businesses that rise and do really, really well. Uh, and to be more specific, to provide a, uh, a counterexample, when we see those businesses that are struggling, we look at you know, what type of marketing spend are they spending relative to their revenue in terms of percentage of revenue. When I see a business that you know is is struggling financially, and they are they're basically spending maybe one or two percent a year uh, on advertising and relative to their revenue, and still they're struggling. You know that does provide some clues because when we look at those businesses that are spending you know ten or twenty percent, there's no rule of thumb here, but they're just spending a higher amount than their peers and their competitors. What happens is they simply acquire more customers. And they have sort of this ripple effect that, that, that happens. I mean, I can talk more about that ripple effect. But, you know, pr marketing spend and advertising spend 
it, it, it does pay dividends if done properly. I mean, I would say your podcast is probably a good example of successful advertising and marketing. I would, if it's fair to put that under that umbrella. Um, and w- what you find is for those businesses that sort of excel in that area, uh, marketing affects, you know, price, for example. So those businesses that are more effective marketers, they tend to be able to charge more than those businesses that uh, are not as aggressive with their marketing. They tend to be able to select their customers, clients, or patients more so than those businesses that can't be as discerning because right. they simply don't have as many leads or their phone doesn't ring as often. Um, interestingly, we also see that the um, quality of their services tend to be better because they're bringing in better clients at higher prices so they have more money available internally to provide a better quality product or better quality service and uh, another ripple effect from that is that they tend to hire better employees which also impacts Mm -hmm. qualities because they have more available they've got more uh they've got instead of you know trying to find somebody at you know x amount of the year they can find somebody at x plus thirty thousand dollars a year find the best people recruit the best people you know, that's one example. It's a case-by-case study. Another example might be you know, having the ability to buy better equipment right? to, to, yeah. to provide mm-hmm. whatever you're doing. I mean, I could go through a, a bunch of examples in that area. But the key well, I mean, some doctors are uh-huh. like Dr. Eric Braverman uses something called a DEXA scan now, which yeah. is basically 21st century technology where you can scan every organ in the body. Now, most doctors, they're sticking their finger in your prostate, right? Which is a very antiquated way of, <laughs> of, of assessing organ health. Now, that, that's basically a prehistoric compared to what's available. So as a result, a smart doctor is leaning towards this technology that I just mentioned, not only because obviously it's – it's going to make the client. It's going to make the customer much more compliant. You know, you're going to be less reticent about going to, or, or less reluctant rather about going to the doctor for the right. visit. And then two, it's more accurate. So you just increase your value several fold with one purchase. Absolutely, that's a great example. I mean, I think the, the takeaway from this this item here is simply to ask the question. If and it doesn't matter, even if you don't have a business, any anybody can do this. The question to ask is, what can I do? to improve the value of my business or grow my career. In other words, consciously think about it, take steps in that direction, don't overlook it as an investment opportunity. And I'm trying to frame it as an investment opportunity because to the extent that you can do things to um, hire better people or acquire more clients, customers, or patients, or improve the equipment that you have in your business to create efficiencies, uh, to grow your career, you should be asking these questions before we get to other things like real estate or the capital markets. Well, I think a good point you brought up also is to attract high-quality customers. A lot of people make the mistake of just wanting anybody that's willing to be a customer. Yeah, A lot of of fitness professionals are going, I just want volume. It's like, no, you don't want volume. You don't want people that are a total nuisance to deal with, that are a headache, that are going to cost you a lot of time because time is money as well. Time is a resource, and you don't get time back. Once you waste a lot of time, it's gone. It's not not a renewable energy source. So yeah, I, you don't want to be though. With my business, I always I I called like a guy on a podcast yesterday was going. You know how do you how do you work, what do you do with people that uh, you know need motivation and uh, just uh, they need to have a they need help with this. I go I don't I don't I don't work with such people. <laughs> you know exactly. people who come to me are 
they they just need to know what to do. They're already motivated. They're going, I'm sick of being in whatever state I'm in. I'm ready to get to, well, here are my goals. How do I get there? And then that's what I'm helping them with. I'm not someone who's going to be like, okay, man, you know, what's your number? Because I'm going to call you up every day, make sure you get out of bed, hit those workouts. <laughs> you know, that's just not my personality. So I think an important point for business people to make is, who exactly are you? You know, what ex- what kind of person are you? You know, what kind of people do you want to work with? And then just stay the course. Maybe it'll take a little bit longer to get to where you want to go, but you're going to be way yeah, more satisfied, sure. and you're you're going to you're more likely to stay in business because you're not going to be so frustrated and distraught. Yeah, you don't want to be the Walmart of, of your business where you're yeah, all right. things to all people. Because I mean, next thing you know, you got the people Walmart type website happening. <laughs> you know, these are the people that actually shop with this guy or work with this guy. You don't want to end up being that way, man. Well, then you get stuck in price wars as well. Yes, right? exactly. Where, where someone comes to you like, hey, sincere, how much do you charge for a one month program? And then they come to me, hey, Mike, how much do you charge? And then go to Ken, hey, how much do you charge? And then try to get us all in a battle. Well, yeah, sadly, well, Mike sincere <laughs> says he charges this. Okay, I'll, I'll charge you less. And you know, I, the, I don't get into that stuff. Well, I the good thing is, man, I usually I usually don't reply to those emails. When someone's shopping, especially for the things that we do, it's like if you if you got to shop for your health, if you got to shop for if it's not that important to you that you got to sit there and just like, well, how much is your whatever you're doing here trying to get from us? How much is it really worth to you? So my thing is, you can't even put a price on that, man, and you can't put a price on all the knowledge that we've we've acquired over the years and all the money we've invested to get this knowledge for you to come to us as experts. You know, if we really go there, I mean, I don't think you want to know the price. So <laughs> that's the thing about it. So you need to ask yourself. Avoid all of these people by just charging a lot. Yeah, and that's the thing. I, I had to do a guy like this. <laughs> I was up to five hundred bucks an hour for a private lesson, and people were willing to pay it, by the way. Yeah. And I, I priced it that high because I didn't even want to do it anymore. But I was like. Like if that doesn't, to pay that doesn't that, work. I'll, I'll, I'll allocate some time towards it, and people were still willing to pay it. I was like, "Damn, I'm gonna have to increase it more." <laughs> so I'm trying to discourage this. So then so you I just say, I "You know what? I don't do that." You know, just like you know, I, I learned it. Yeah, from that's like, what I do now. Like Shonda Rhimes said, "You know, I'm not gonna be able to do that." You know, that's her answer for a lot of stuff, man. You know, she's like, "I'm, I'm busy and I'm not interested in that. That does, that does nothing for me." And she's like, "Nah, I'm not gonna be able to do it." And after that, what can they say? <laughs> well, what happens is you're positioning yourself. So mm-hmm. now you're right. now instead of being instead of like everyone is trying to fight for your business. I go, no, 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 no. I'm not going to fight for your business. You have to fight for my time. Right. So I flip the script on people. I go, why should I work with you? Exactly. And then all of a right. sudden, people are not used to that. Right. It's kind of <laughs> like that scene in Boiler Room Rowhead. Remember where Vin <laughs> Diesel is making that sales pitch to that yeah. doctor? Yeah. <laughs> and then the doctor is like, look, I'm not interested in this. And Vin Diesel's like, well, look, man, here's the kind of growth we're having. And honestly, doc, I don't even have time to tell you about it. Right. And all of a sudden, the doctor's like, well, wait, 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 I, I think what happens is a lot of customers are used to people desperately trying to attain their business. I don't yeah. do that crap. I don't do it one bit. If someone comes to me and says, oh, Mike, your testosterone booster is more expensive than this one. I'm like, yeah, mine works. That one doesn't. So which one's a better value? You're going to pay more for something that works or you're going to pay less for something that doesn't work? How is it a better deal to pay less for something that doesn't work? You know? <laughs> and, and that all gets to what I was trying to articulate, which is – you're able to become discerning with respect to who you accept as a customer, a client, or a patient, what have you, if you make the necessary investments in your business, whether that be the time to create content, right. the, the, the time or the money to position yourself as an authority. All of that is, is what I consider to be falling under the umbrella of investing, You know, investing your resources to optimize that facet of it so that you can be discerning and you can measure – their return 
uh, that you get on the time and money that you put in. But just think about the example of the doctor with the DEXA scan. He, he can charge a lot more, and then the customer will say, well, hey, why should I pay more for that? It's like, yeah, you can pay less and have someone stick his finger up your ass. How about that? <laughs> you know? Or you can pay more, get the DEXA scan, and then have a better assessment with less stress. How about that? You know? <laughs> Absolutely. Well, the next the next item in this same sort of um, framework is I, I jump to real estate now because when you when you think about the framework, always reference back the degree of liquidity and the amount of control. With the degree of liquidity, again, real estate you can't just go online and push a button. You've got to. You, I mean, you can for sale by owner if you will, but most people are going to use a. You, you, you could, but you probably shouldn't, right? <laughs> right. You could buy. You could. You could buy an apartment in Dubai online, but it's probably not a good idea. <laughs> exactly, and and again, the amount of control you can exert. That's why I put it third under business and career because you can you can exert slightly less control in real estate than you can in your business. Some may argue with that, and depending on how a student experience they are, that might be true, but. The bottom line is is that real estate is an area where y- the market is not as efficient. So there are opportunities for those who really, really spend a lot of time uh, getting to know a certain market, for example, a geographic area and a certain type of real estate. Once you sort of get up to speed, if you see something come on the market that, let's say, it may be underpriced mm-hmm. or mispriced, in other words, there may be value there. Uh, this can be done in business as well if you're on an acquisition spree, but I didn't talk about that. But the, but the bottom line with real estate is is that there are opportunities. They may not be as frequent, but if you are resourceful and you get to know a market, um, there are legitimate opportunities within the real estate sector to find uh, good rental properties, for example, yeah. mm-hmm. um, or properties that may be temporarily underpriced. Or you may be able to add a lot of value uh, because you're familiar with the area and uh, there may be a property that's lacking X, Y, and Z and you realize that if you add A, B, and C, you may be able to add a significant amount of value. There's a whole bunch of different ways to sort of look at real estate. But it is something that can be on the radar and and in some cases should be on the radar for, for some people. I always talk about this with some hesitation because... Um, with respect to this particular item, it's one of the few out of the areas that we're going to talk about today that when people approach this, they're not going to be paying all cash in most cases. Right. They're generally going to be financing it, mm-hmm. and we're going to be talking about debt later and some of the inherent risks and drawbacks of debt, but some of the unique advantages uh, when, when the opportunities are there to leverage debt. But this is one of those areas where if you bet and get it precisely right, then the debt will magnify the gain in that you borrowed money to do something good, to do something correctly, financially speaking, and you made money. But the problem with real estate is if you bet and you calculate and you bet precisely wrong, that same debt also has the the, the effect of magnifying that loss. And so with real estate, one really, really has to proceed with caution. And so for that reason, you know, I generally recommend that for those that are, you know, adamant about getting into uh, real estate investing, and we're, we're going to talk more about biases and, and other things in, 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 a, in a later um, topic here. But they really have to take the time to get to know their local market because it's. It, I mean, real estate is so different even from 
you know, if you go five miles down the road, yeah. uh, for, you know, if I'm, I'm out here in Northern Virginia and I've been following the real estate market for a long time, I mean, I could literally go even one mile down the road and the market and the economics and the rents and the prices and the asset values, I mean, they're completely different from just one mile up the road. Right. And or, so, yeah. you know, or even like here in Texas, one pothole away. You hit one pothole in the road and boom, boom. You know, or you go right over the railroad track. It's like, whoa, what just happened? I was just in this neighborhood where all the homes were in the millions. And now I just hit this one little pothole. And now all of a sudden, they're all like in the low 100s or 200s. And it's just like, and especially with all the gentrification that's going on in all the major cities. And now even the midsize cities as well. It's just, you know, and, and then how long is that going to last? How long is that well, going to last? I also think one of the biggest myths that most people believe is that, Buying a home is the best investment you'll ever make, right? They don't realize how volatile the real estate market is, or at least they should now, given how up and down it's been. I mean, I have neighbors who paid five hundred, six hundred thousand dollars for their house, and then the valuation after the economy took a big hit dropped to two hundred fifty thousand, and they're right. still they're still paying a monthly mortgage based on a five hundred thousand dollar valuation. Some of these people had to dump their houses and they sold it for two fifty, you know, yeah. half of what they paid for it. That happened a lot. And I think yeah, it kind of plays into what Rohi was talking about. It's like when you're watching things like that, that can become an opportunity for you as an investor, you know, in real estate, also, yeah. a big investment, you know. So it's just like, okay, I'll go ahead and take that house for 250 <laughs> you know, add a couple little things here and there, and then, you know, rent it out. And then, you know, yeah, I got this this loan or whatever that I took out for it or whatever then. But the thing is, I already have my own house. So why not have those, you know, make sure you get the right, you know, person in there who and, and charge the right amount of rent, have them paying that loan out. You know, start yeah. doing that. It's kind of like Robert Kiyosaki 101 right there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, a home most certainly is not an investment. New. So <laughs> I think that's a common myth that people uh, miss. But l- let me clarify that because it's not accurate to make sort of a sweeping generalization, mm-hmm. you know, because there's an argument against it and, and, mm-hmm. and it's valid. I mean, the argument against it, like, for example, certain markets like Southern California. Uh, markets like London or markets like uh, New York, you know, a lot of folks in those markets who, and we're talking about a home here as a primary residence, not as an investment. Now, an investment in real estate, when I talk about real estate, I'm talking about investing in real estate. That means that you're not living in it, you're renting it, and you have a tenant that's paying you every month. It's generating cash flow. That is what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about a home as a primary residence. A home most certainly, for most people, is not an investment. It's actually a huge drain on your cash flow. And um, But again, when you look at certain markets, those folks probably would argue that my home is probably the best investment that I've ever made, and they'd probably be right because yeah. they're in Southern California or New York or London or another market in San Francisco where they've made – you know, a huge sum of money in terms of appreciation. Yeah. So there's some luck involved. There's some geographic disparities involved. But in most parts of the country in the U.S., when we look at the data, as a best case scenario, your home probably will simply just keep up with inflation over a long time horizon. Right. So, you know, some years it might underperform, other years it might outperform, but you're looking at probably somewhere between the three and a half. Uh, maybe 4% growth, depending on where you are in the country. And in some cases, you may not even get that, you know, if you're out in, in, in a rural part of the country. So the key with real estate is to recognize it for what it is, depending upon where it is. And <clears throat> you want to focus on price. You know, that's another example 
that I see. That's another issue that I see. You know, Mike mentioned that you shouldn't be afraid to rent, and I would echo that. You know, and a good example of that would be in markets like um, San Francisco, for example. You know, one rule of thumb I share with people is when it comes to real estate, you've got to determine asset prices on your own. You've got to think independently because, as Mike mentioned, the markets can go crazy. And unless you have some framework or some rule of thumb in terms of how to value real estate, you really don't know whether you're right and everybody else is wrong or if everybody else is right and you're wrong. And one rule of thumb that I share with people is when you look at real estate, even if you're looking at it from the vantage point of buying real estate for your own personal residence, use some sort of valuation metric uh, to value that property. And here's an example. This one's really simple. A lot of people don't talk about it, but I really like it because it's so simple. And what I tell people is when you look at real estate, find out how much rent that property would um, generate on an annual basis mm-hmm. and then multiply it toward times a multiplier that you're familiar that you're comfortable with. So here's an example. You know, let's say you're looking at a house and it might generate about $20,000 a year in gross rent. Well, as a bottom sort of rule of thumb, you want to multiply that times in some markets 15, okay? In some markets 18, in some markets 21. In terms of what that multiplier is, whether it's 15 or 18 or 21, you don't want to necessarily spend more on the price of that home. Okay, and what I mean by that is, let's say in my example, if that property is generating, has the potential to generate $20,000 a year in rent, even though you'll probably never rent it, um, this is just a mechanism to value real estate. So, you know, $20,000 a year times 15 would mean that I'm not going to spend more than $300,000 on this house. So, if that $300,000 house is selling for $500,000, you know something's wrong. Right, and, yeah. and it's my opinion that if people had something like that back when the market was going crazy, um, they most of the people that uh, unfortunately you know had to deal with the losses that they subsequently had to deal with, we saw the foreclosures and the short sales that resulted from that crisis. Uh, they could have avoided that, yeah. you know. And I'm not saying 15 is the multiplier. I mean, in some parts of the country, 15 is not going to get you anywhere in the, in the ballpark. Uh, but it might be 18, it might be 21. You've got to find that multiplier for yourself. But the point here is is that you've got to have some mechanism. You can't trust the markets. You can't trust even your realtor to define what an appropriate price should be for that home. Mm. You've got to determine that for yourself. And another thing that I add on this is you've got to do that and pretend as if you're paying cash for that property. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yes. I see this a lot in practice is that people will often, what they do is they they will justify poor purchase decisions with superior debt terms. Mm. And that is a mistake. And what I mean by that is when it comes to real estate, they'll say, well, hey, you know, I may not be getting a good price and they may actually know they're not getting a good price or they might be getting a terrible price, but they're, but they're justifying it with all sorts of irrational sort of justifications. One of them, for example, would be, well, you know what? I'm getting great terms on this financing. I'm getting a very, very low interest rate. Right. And so I'm just going to make up for what I would lose on the price and, and, and what I would, and I'll, I'll balance it with what I would gain uh, with these great financing terms. And, and that is not how the affluent necessarily looks at buying real estate. I mean, if you 
if you imagine that you had, let's say, $10 million in cash and financing was not even an issue, in other words, you're not even going to shop for financing. I know most people might not be able to relate to this, but it's just an example. The example is meant to illustrate that on in that scenario, you wouldn't even be looking at debt terms or financing terms. You'll simply be looking at the price right. and not overpaying for that property is what you should be focusing on, getting a fair price and not overpaying yeah. for that real estate. So you've got to have some rule of thumb, and if folks use the simple rule of thumb I gave you, I think that will really serve you, You know, because you'll be asking different questions of the realtor. The realtor probably never even has received questions like this before. Yeah, you'll be asking them, hey, listen, I'm interested in buying this house. Tell me, if I had to rent this house, what can I expect in terms of gross rents? And they'll give you a monthly number. You multiply that times 12 and then take it and multiply it times either 15 or 18 or 21 or some other multiplier that's suitable for that geographic area. Come up with your own number and then come up with an offer on that property such that you're not overpaying. That's the key is don't right. overpay for assets. Because most of the time mm-hmm. when someone's trying to sell a house, they're just putting an arbitrary number out there, right? They're just saying, well, let's let's try 700000 and see what happens. That's and then, exactly right. And then if right. no one's willing to pay that, they're like, mm-hmm. okay, let's drop it down to six hundred thousand. And that usually, and that's usually what happens, especially if it's been on the market for a certain amount of time. You'll right. see it right. when you go look on the listing; it's dropped and it's dropped. And it's a year later, and they've gone down like one hundred and fifty, two hundred thousand dollars. And then you start questioning, like, okay, what's the deal here? And it looks kind of bad because then. As the purchaser, they're looking like, okay, something must be wrong with that house. Well, no, that person just really came up with this asinine number that had, was not based on anything. It just sounded good, you know, or it was based on some wants that they wanted in their personal life. And like, hey, let's just let's sell for seven hundred thousand so we can go ahead and get us a condo in Dubai, <laughs> you know. So it wasn't it wasn't realistic, you know. That's exactly. well, I mean, they're they're just trying to get the most they can, right? So it's like, why not start high? Someone may pay it. Someone may not do any research as Rohit is recommending and just say, screw it, I like the house. Let's just buy it. Well, they make a mistake if they go high and just hope that they'll negotiate. He's like, let me start high because I know they're going to want to go low. So then by the time we negotiate, it'll be somewhere in the middle. Well, that doesn't necessarily that doesn't necessarily carry over in the real estate market like that. It's like in Kenya, you go to buy like a, some arts and crafts out in the middle of nowhere. It starts at 50 bucks. And by the time you buy it, it's 50 cents. You know? yeah, yeah, haggling. Yeah. That's exactly right. And to drive this point home uh, and to follow up on a point that Mike brought up, which is the thing with real estate is, again, People get emotional about real estate, and when a house is listed, you know the price could be arbitrary, and oftentimes it is. People are just picking a number because all it takes is one person to buy that, and if that one person has some sort of irrational or emotional response to that property, why would you or how could you compete with them? Why would you want to overpay? So the way to stay rational with real estate, because people fall in love with the, the, you know, a house or a home, it's a completely emotional decision. You've got to have a rational way to, 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 to ground yourself. And using a financial metric like the one I shared, that will help people. But to, to follow up on a point that Mike brought up, because I think it's so important, is when you look at a market like San Francisco, because you mentioned renting and people shouldn't be afraid to rent. And rent renting gets such a, a bad rap. There's so much negative sort of perceptions around it, which I think is completely unfounded. When you look at a market like San Francisco, it's a great illustration. You know, when you when you look at a house or an apartment, for example, that's selling for you know 1.2 million or 2 million or 3 million, you know, some of these uh, astronomical figures for which properties in certain geographies sell for. 
But then when you look at that same property and find out, well, what would it cost me to simply rent this? And if that is like something closer to like 3000 a month or 3500 a month or 4000 a month, in other words, the cost of renting and the disparity that exists between renting and buying is so huge. You know, if you bought that property, you'd have a loan for let's say twelve, thirteen thousand dollars a month. You know, and or you could rent it for significantly less. In those cities, in those geographies, I'm giving an extreme example just to drive the point home. Most cities are not like this, but many cities around the world are. You'd be crazy not to rent that same property because you could, as long as you take. And this is the caveat: as long as you take the difference and invest it elsewhere. So that's the discipline. So yeah. let's say mm-hmm. you're saving $3,000 a month by renting somewhere and not buying. Well, the purchaser, the buyer, they perceive that they're building equity. It may even be phantom equity that actually doesn't exist because until you sell that property and cash out, you really have no uh, verifiable equity. But when you rent and you're saving money each month, the key is to take that excess cash flow and put it to good use. Whether that be, again, in yourself, in your business, or the capital markets, or in other rental real estate, in something, uh, so that you're actually making progress and not just taking that excess savings and flushing it down the toilet. No doubt. Um, <clears throat> so the last the last item here that I, that I sort of share in this framework is the, the most common sort of investment outlet, if you will, that, that everybody uh, sort of shares, which is the capital markets, right? The stock markets, the bond markets. And so once you've sort of gone through this framework in the order in which I shared, uh, the capital markets would be a, a towards the, the bottom of that. Only because if you think about the degree of liquidity and the amount of control, this okay. is this is where it becomes really important. The degree of liquidity, the capital markets generally are extremely efficient, right? Uh, you can go online and buy and sell pretty much whatever you want, whenever you want, right? So it's an efficient market. And the amount of control you can exert, I would argue you really can't exert too much control. I'm going to share with, with listeners today where they can exert control and um, and so that they have some concrete items to walk away with. But the capital markets would be uh, on the bottom here simply because you've got less control, you've got more liquidity, so you've got less opportunity, I would argue, to sort of influence the outcome as you could whether if you were investing in yourself, in your business, your career, or real estate. Okay. So with that in mind, shall we talk about retirement? Yeah, absolutely. Let's do that. Well, some, yeah. people, some people are probably never going to retire. Exactly. <laughs> well, me, I'm semi-retired now. Exactly. Cool. <laughs> yeah. And I, I, well, I want to share some strategies that I hopefully will help folks not only build a retirement plan for it, uh, but succeed when they get there. Right. And so um, – let me just define retirement for a minute because people define it differently and yeah. it means different things to different people. Um, when, when most people talk about retirement, they're talking about it in the context of you know, work stops completely yeah. and then you kind of transition to something else. Um, another way to define retirement would be having the ability to work because you want to and not necessarily because you have to. Right. Um, which I which I like a lot. Yeah, no doubt. And um, you know that is a powerful position to be in, um, and that's a position that I think you know we can all aspire to. Uh, I, think I think it's I think it's always important to work, right? Because I remember 
little bit of a tangent, but I remember my grand my grandfather was a very successful consultant for Fortune 500 companies, and he loved his work. He traveled the world, meeting with CEOs, high level business people. And then when he retired, there was a real shift in his excitement for life. Is when he retired, he didn't just work less. He stopped working altogether. And I really felt like he devalued himself, meaning that he didn't have much purpose anymore because he is someone who enjoyed his work so much. He's not someone who just did a job he hated for 40 years, like, I can't wait to retire so I can finally enjoy life. He enjoyed what he was doing. So the lesson I learned from him is definitely pursue what you want to do in life, but there's no real reason to stop it completely. There you go. You you can do something else, maybe write books, maybe consult – a lot less and just or maybe just work when you feel like working but you're still working i like that i i yeah. that that is one of my favorite ways to think about retirement yeah because it really is maybe the most powerful position you can be in when you have enough assets uh to do what you want when you want because you want to and not because you have to right and uh, the other thing i like about thinking about retirement that way is as you sort of get there you can do things not only that you want to do, but you can take on riskier projects along yeah, the way. No doubt. And what, and what I mean by that is, you know, risk and return are related, right? As a finance yeah. guy, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we know that to be true. Sure. And, but financial theory generally dictates that the older that we get, the more conservative we have to become. You know, because we're getting older, our circumstances are changing. Therefore, right. we can't be as aggressive. And but when you have a retirement. Uh, sort of framework in place in the way that I'm going to share with you, and if you think about it in that light, then you can actually reverse that to some extent. You can actually take on more riskier projects, more interesting projects, however you want to define it. You can innovate, you know, because even if it doesn't work out, then, you know, it's not the end of the world, right? Um, There's a a blackjack player in in Vegas, Rohit, who... He's the most successful blackjack player ever. I mean, he's he's almost put casinos out of business. There's a there's a documentary oh, yeah. about him on Netflix. Anyway, what this guy does is he he has very smart. He doesn't count cards. I thought he must be a great counter. He doesn't even count cards. What he does is creates strategies that work in his favor, such as he gets back fifty percent of all of his losses. Right. If the dealer makes a mistake, they have to redo the bet, you know, win or lose. It's just different strategies, just different ways to make the game work in his favor. But what he says he does is once he gets ahead, so he sits down, once he has a spread, in other words, he's won a certain amount, now he really starts getting aggressive with risks rather than the second he sits down at the table because he's so far ahead now. And I, f- I found out to be the same, right? Like early in my business, I didn't take a lot of risks because I didn't have any money to risk. <laughs> you know, you're just getting by. Now I can take much bigger risks. I can and, take way bigger yeah. risks because I can handle that. If it doesn't work out, worst case scenario, I can put several hundred thousand into something. If it doesn't work out, it's not the end of the world. I'm not going to be happy about it, but it's not the end of the world. So I, I, I get completely what you're saying. And it's liberating to be in that position. There's a sense of freedom that comes and there's a sense of satisfaction, even Definitely. work satisfaction that comes yeah. from being in that position. And I, and, and that's what I want to sort of deconstruct and, and share with folks how to get there so that they have some sort of roadmap. And um, so so let me share a few strategies. Um, you know, Generally, I'm going to introduce folks to a concept called sustainable withdrawal rates. And it's a, it's a concept that most – financial advisors will chat with clients on as they're sort of 
a few years away from retirement, if you will. Um, it's something because it relates to, you know, there, there's three phases generally. There's the accumulation phase of wealth, there's the preservation phase of wealth, and then there's the distribution phase. And this relates mainly to the distribution phase. But I like to talk about it first because, you know, Stephen Covey said, the way to succeed is to begin with the end in mind. Mm-hmm. And uh, so let's talk about withdrawal rates. You guys there? Yeah, we're right here. Okay. Great. Yeah, right here. I just have it on uh-huh. mute in case my dogs bark. Whenever you're talking, Rohit, I just mute it in case one of my dogs starts barking because I've got some people doing some yard work around here as well. Okay. Yeah, no problem. So withdrawal rates, what does that mean? So basically what that means is if you begin with the end in mind, it becomes much easier to construct your sort of retirement strategy, if you will, however you define it. So basically – let me give you two extreme examples, and most people will be somewhere in between, but it's, it's helpful to kind of illustrate with two extreme examples. So one individual says, listen, you know, when my time is up on this planet, when, when, it, when, when that date of expiration comes, the last check I write on this planet, on this earth, before I leave, should bounce. I should time my withdrawal and draw a distribution of assets such that you know, that last check bounces. I, I don't want anything left. I don't want to because I can't take it with me when I'm gone. So I want to draw down on everything. He's not concerned, or she's not concerned in that example with preserving wealth across multiple generations. The other extreme is a more conservative person that says, "Hey, listen, you know, I've built this 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 nest egg. I've built this 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 asset base, and I want to preserve the principles such that." Multiple generations can live off this. I don't want to deplete it such that you know I can't. I don't have anything to pass along to uh, charities or future generations. I want these assets to remain as they are. So I only want to spend uh, the amount that will enable me to preserve the amount that I originally uh, saved. You know, adjusted for inflation. So those are the two extremes. Now most people are going to be somewhere in between. But why do I bring this up in the context of retirement? Because if you begin with this concept, then you can sort of work backwards from there. So, for example, that conservative person is going to have a much lower withdrawal rate on his or her assets than that person who says, hey, listen, the last check I write on this planet should bounce because they're ready to draw down everything. Does that make sense? So basically, yeah. you know, yeah. that number, whatever that number is, whether it's 2%, whether it's 7%, um, whatever that number is, somewhere in the middle or somewhere higher or lower, right. um, it's a point of controversy in the community. So I'm not going to get into specific numbers because it varies from client to client, and it varies based on what on when you retire. So, um, but that will help you be- begin with the end in mind. So, for example, let's just say, for example, you could live off of you know a hundred thousand dollars a year, and you've got a, an, a, a portfolio that you built of two point five million dollars. Well. If you have two and a half million and you can live off a hundred thousand dollars a year, then you could theoretically draw down about four percent a year, and have some reasonable uh, basis to extend that portfolio over a long time horizon, right? Okay, Thirty or more years. And so, without getting into too many specifics, that is where folks should begin because if you can define what you want your withdrawal rate to be and where you are in that continuum, then you can back into the number and the answer to the most common question I get, which is how much do I need to save to be able to retire? So yeah. that is the answer to that. 
so the, the answer to that is, well, if you can figure out what number you're comfortable with with respect to a withdrawal rate and how long you need to preserve those assets, you can back into how much do I need to save to get there. And so that's beginning with the end in mind. Um, one last framework I share on this topic is, you know, how do you break that down? Because, you know, getting to such a large esoteric number is so overwhelming for most people. Yeah. And um, unless you break it down, it's it's it, it can be overwhelming. So one of the things I share with folks to break that down into smaller nuggets is if having an asset base to be able to do what we want when we want because we want to and not because we have to, if that's the goal, then how do we get there? Well, start somewhere. So what where, where I where I, what I tell clients is start with let's say a year or two. So if you know what your expenses are to live, your lifestyle expenses, let's just say for example they're fifty thousand dollars. I'm making up a number. So that means that once you've got a hundred thousand dollars set aside, well you know that push comes to shove, you could go two years without having to work without having to generate an income, right? Because you've got 100000 set aside. So once you've got a base, then simply work towards extending that base one year at a time. So that's how you slowly work your way up to extending that sort of freedom, that financial independence, if you will, one year at a time to the point where you have enough assets so that they can last you for the remaining time horizon that you've defined for yourself. So eventually you'll, you'll have three years, and then you'll know you're four years away from having to work. Then you'll, one day you'll be eight years away from having to work. And as you slowly push that further and further away, so you've got more years that you can go without having to work if you don't want to, that's going to give you sort of a bite size. You know, how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? You can kind of break that down to figure out, okay, here's how I'm going to break this big goal into small pieces. I think that's a good way to look at really any goal, right? right. Like someone, someone wants to take their deadlift from 400 pounds to 500 pounds. You don't think of adding 100 pounds in a month. You think of a much longer time frame. Think of a more realistic time frame, such as maybe five pounds a month, and then you have a clear idea of where you're going. So I think I think with anything, you have to have a clearly defined goal and then a time frame on when you want to make it happen. And whether it takes longer or it takes less is somewhat irrelevant. You just, you just need to have that target in your mind so that you're focused. Absolutely. Absolutely. In, in the same spirit, one of the things I like to share with clients is to recognize the difference between gambling and investing because we're talking about investing. <laughs> yeah. So this is a big one. So if you're um, playing blackjack, you're gambling, unless you're <laughs> counting cards. You know, <laughs> then it's investing. Then you're investing. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and, I, and I kind of take it uh, one step even further, and, and I try to clarify something that clients don't necessarily ask me, but it's, it's there in that it, we may not necessarily be aware of this, but until I share it with, with, with them, then once they become aware of it, they can sort of – think about this more clearly. And here's what I share with clients is that there's two extremes here. So let me give you an example. One one extreme is that you've got someone that's really conservative in their career, but they're aggressive with what they think is investing. So an example would be, let's say they're you know not really focused on growing uh, their business or their career, but it, instead they're checking out at, you know, checking out early and, and, and then from four to 12, they're focused on day trading and options investing, or they're at the casino, 
you know, trying to hit it big. I, they call it investing. I call it gambling because uh, I'm going to talk about what investing is in a moment. Um, but that would be one extreme, and that's the exact opposite from another example, which would be the aggressive entrepreneur that's exerting a lot of control over their business and focusing on growing it and taking on those risky projects that could potentially pay off big because they can exert their intellect, their influence on those projects and the outcome of those projects. But they're not gambling and they're not doing day trading and options you know, from four to ten. Instead, they're pragmatic with their investing. And notice I said, I said pragmatic, not conservative. So I'm not talking about conservative investing. I'm talking about pragmatism. And there's a difference. And so that's an important distinction to be aware of because, in my opinion, it's far better to be aggressive in your career and pragmatic with your investing rather right. than being conservative with your career but aggressive with your investing. And I see this all the time. Yeah, I you have, you have way more control on your career than investing, exactly. right? The market, who knows what's going to happen? Exactly. It's very emotional. Exactly. You got to focus on where the big bets are. I mean, to to borrow from fitness, you know, again, and and I don't pretend to be an expert. I, uh, I I'm not, but you know, it's analogous to going into the gym and instead of focusing on you know deadlifts and squats and and presses and those few exercises that produce the most bang for your buck instead right. you go in and all you do is you know tricep pull downs and 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 bicep curls you know <laughs> right. and 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 that's the and, but i see this so often that it, it, it's worthwhile to mention it yeah um, and so you got to focus on the right things that pay off the most and uh and warren buffett has a great example on this he talks about and i'm paraphrasing here he talks about is it better to be an average member of a superior ship or a superior <laughs> member of an average ship. And the yeah, example right. he gives is, you know, if you're an average employee at a hedge fund, you're probably going to do pretty well for yourself, yeah. you know. But if you're the outstanding employee of the month, you know, at, um, uh, you know, at, 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 let's just say, you know, I don't know, some some um, some some place that that doesn't pay really well, that doesn't have the wherewithal to pay, you're probably mm. not going to do very well, yeah. right? And so it's the it's the difference between sort it's of like uh, in, in fitness. I mean, Westside Barbell Club is the most elite powerlifting gym in the country, right? Or if not the world, and the average guy there bench presses five fifty and deadlifts seven fifty, right? So <laughs> you're better off being that guy than the strongest guy at the local gym. You I get the twenty four hour fitness. Where, where I'm probably the strongest guy. <laughs> you know, I'm not close to those numbers. <laughs> yeah, that's that's yeah because of who, who your peers are, right? And and mm -hmm. uh, one example I like to give on this is that. You know the paddle boat versus a speedboat. You know you could you could optimize and become as proficient as possible at getting that paddle boat to go as fast as you could. But you you know but when you compare that to not having really any clue on how to operate a speedboat, the speedboat probably still will get you there faster simply because the economics of that boat right. are are different. And right. so you got to focus on you got to think about what you're focusing on. And so you know, you got to frame investing in, in the light in which it's going to actually pay off. So I'd be happy to chat more and talk about those areas that you can control in investing. Are you guys like to talk about that? Yeah, sure. Yeah, sure. Let's, yeah let's see. Uh, yeah, as long as you have the time, man, we're good. 
We're at, yeah, we're, at, we're, at, we're at about an hour right now, so we'll probably cap it off at usually. I usually like to cap episodes off at about the ninety minute mark. So what we can do is if if we don't cover everything you wanted to get into, we'll just bring you back. Okay. Well, let me hear. Let me see here. Let me look at um, some of the other areas that um, we can talk about. So let me let me skip a few things on the the, the sort of tactics involving investing because for those who are interested i've got some free resources and reports cool. they can always sort of follow up and read on, on those topics if you will but let me just share a couple of big picture things that uh, that might resonate with uh, more people rather than getting into specifics so um one of the other things i like to talk about and share with people is to recognize your own biases and so you know this plays out with with investing um, because what we find is that some people have sort of these affinities for, let's say, art, you know, affinities for real estate, or right. they have sort of irrational fears of the stock market, <laughs> you know, or it might be cultural. It might be even organizational. Uh, for example, you know, because you're surrounded by people in the same company, everybody's sort of um, following the same sort of approach, you know. Um, so you have to. Be at least ask yourself if I'm making certain decisions, is it because I've got some predisposed biases, and are those biases helping me or hurting me? Right. Um, we see this all the time. I give an example uh, from my own my own father. Um, he was a um, he had a long career um, at a, a well known tech company, and um, he had basically a, a accumulated stock position. In that company that had accumulated over 20 years uh, working for WorldCom, believe mm -hmm. it or not. Yeah. And so basically what happened is he had accumulated um, a significant amount of stock in this company. I don't, I don't talk about the numbers, but let's just say it was a very, very significant amount right. such that it was a concentrated position in this company. And a lot of people find themselves in this position. In fact, I'm shocked to see how many people find themselves in this position. They might be putting all their money into art, for right. example. They might put all their money into real estate because they have a bias that says that, hey, listen, unless I can touch it, see it, and feel it, I'm not going to invest in it. Yeah. Right. Um, so long story short, you know, when I was younger, uh, you guys all know the story of the WorldCom and Enrons of the world. Oh, yeah. You oh, know, yeah. They, they crashed and burned and you know, uh, to my father's surprise, you know, he lost in that uh, transaction approximately 90% uh, or more uh, yeah. of his retirement. Yeah. And that really became the motivating force for me in terms of, you know, my why in terms of why I do this. And, and, I, and I was surprised. Well, you know, I, after that event, I probably read at least 200 books on investing um, in, in the 12 months following that event when I saw my dad's assets you know, basically disappear overnight. And when I got into practice later, you know, after I became a CPA and I started working at Price Waterhouse, I was I, I was sure that an event like that, an affinity bias like that, or a concentrated equity position, financial planners call it single stock risk, yeah. because there was a bias in that organization that this company is fantastic, that everybody was kind of you know, sort of drinking the Kool-Aid, if you will, right? That that's right, the right. bias that existed in that organization, and I was I, I was sure that it was sort of an isolated incident, but I was shocked when I saw client after client. I mean, literally after working with hundreds of clients, I can't. Uh, I, I'm surprised to to see how many times I see this. I yeah. still see it, and so you've got to ask yourself, 
am I suffering from some sort of bias? Is it helping me or hurting me? And am I being objective? Yeah. Um, with, with stocks, though, just a little tangent here. With stocks, does anyone really beat, let's say, a total stock market index or a Fortune 500 index, such as what Vanguard offers? Right? Like These aren't things that people get excited about, but in the long run, does anyone beat these? Yeah, well, let's talk about that. Since you brought it up, let's just talk about investing them. The answer is, is that let me share with you the factors that people can control. Because as you point out, most people are not going to be successful with market timing or stock picking yeah, right. or attempting to beat the indices. The data shows, and, and folks that are interested can actually read the data. I'm happy to send it to them. Um, they can go to our, my website and download all that information. But basically, the data supports that the vast majority of the time, most quote-unquote active managers cannot beat the index. They do right. not beat the index. Right. And the data varies from one year to the next, you know, changes and updates every year. But then the data further shows that when those specific managers in those specific asset classes do beat the index, oftentimes it's just attributed to luck. Yeah. And that, right. that luck does not persist, right? And so it's not um, it's not correct to infer from and then and then if you look at the fees you have to pay those managers versus <laughs> the low fees on the index you're probably right. still not even ahead right exactly so let me share with you some of the factors you can control and i'll go down these quickly because i know we only have about 10 minutes so yeah we don't have to cut it off at the 10 minute mark you know i'm just oh yeah, yeah. giving you a time oh. frame so don't don't feel rushed okay so if you can't control the stock market if you can't market time if you can't pick stocks and if People that attempt to tell you that they do have that crystal ball when they actually they don't. Um, a lot of active managers may purport to have a crystal ball, but <laughs> you know, like I said, the data supports that most of the time they underperform the index. You'd be simply better off buying the index, right, uh, which is a lot cheaper, which we'll get into. Then what factors can you control if you can't control those? Well, you can control your cash reserves, right? And so I always recommend to have a nice, healthy cash reserve not just for emergencies, but also for unique opportunities. Yeah, because you never know when unique opportunities Absolutely. to, you know, come across your desk or present themselves. Yeah, and you want to be able to take advantage of those. You can only take advantage of those if you can quickly tap, you know, some sort of cash reserve or you have some degree of liquidity to do so. Um, another factor you can control is your asset allocation, which simply means, you know, do you have a balanced portfolio? What asset classes have you introduced? Uh, to your portfolio. And so asset classes in some studies, asset allocation in some studies has been shown to be attributed to more than 90% of your outcome when it comes to investing. So that's pretty powerful. Yeah. You know, if you think about that, you know, people generally are spending their time, energy, and resources on those items like you know, stock picking and market timing when the vast majority, upwards of potentially 90%, is simply attributed to asset allocation. You know, based on some studies. And so, again, focus on the things that make the most difference. Um, you can focus on your response to market fluctuations. This is called, this is called behavioral finance. So basically, yeah. you know, you can control your emotional, irrational responses to market fluctuations. That, you know, w one way to do that is to turn off your television. <laughs> there you go. That, that's good advice regardless <laughs> of the context. <laughs> Because what happens is we see clients, they're watching CNBC, they're watching you know, the, the shows online, and 
and my, my, my dad does that all day. Oh, every gosh. day he turns on CNN, he sees on there. He, he likes to play with stocks every day, right? <laughs> and he has a tendency, in terms of a bias, he has a tendency to remember all the times that worked out. Yeah, yeah. Well, like most gamblers, most gamblers <laughs> are like, oh, you know, whenever I whenever I do this, I win. I was like, yeah, but ninety percent of the time, you're losing, buddy. And that gets back to the biases that we have that yeah. we develop and keep. Um, what happens is when people are watching these shows, they're responding emotionally or irrationally right. to all of the information. So they're basically taking a prudent plan and changing it unnecessarily. Yeah. And the key with a prudent plan is to develop one and then stick to it over a long period of time. Um, another factor you can control is the cost of investing. And Mike just brought this up, which is so powerful. You know, if you're a do-it-yourselfer when it comes to investing, you'd be well advised to simply use index funds. Yeah. Um, you know, they're super low cost. You can implement an asset class-based approach. We obviously take it one step further as a professional wealth management firm, but do-it-yourselfers can do very, very well yeah. simply using index funds. Vanguard is a great resource for that, as Mike mentioned. I mean, it's what I do, and as a self-employed person, I can maximize it every year, right? So I can lower my taxable income by just maximizing how much I can put into it. And I don't look at it. I, I probably look at it at the portfolio once a year, and that's when I'm putting the yeah. money in during tax time. I don't look at it daily or weekly or monthly like a lot of other people because that's what's going to make you start fiddling around crazy, with stuff. Man. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And it just ruins it. It's like, uh-oh. Things, plus, it's an index fund, so what am I going to do? If it's dropping, I'm going to sell it? <laughs> Buy what? You know? you're, you're investing in the market going up as a whole over time, so there really isn't much to do with it. You know? Exactly, and that speaks to where do returns come from. Returns come from markets, right? Not necessarily managers who are uh, attempting to purport. No, but to have al that but also, my time is better spent on things I have control over, just like what you mentioned, Rohit, such as product development, pushing my products, developing the podcast. Those things are, are things that are going to make me the most money, way more so than investing, and those are things that I actually have some control over. That's exactly right. And that goes back to those two approaches. You know, are you going to be the aggressive entrepreneur and pragmatic with your investing, or yeah. the conservative uh, person who's aggressive with investing? Right? Which approach is better, or is somewhere in the middle? As I'm um, listening to you talk, I'm, I'm patting myself on the back. <laughs> <laughs> I go, I like the way. This yeah, is I'm going. sitting there. I'm sitting there smiling. I'm like, my wife's going to love listening to this episode. It's like, oh. <laughs> that's awesome. That's great. That's fantastic. Uh, another example. Another example of something you can control is your tax strategy. Right. right? That's yes. important. Um, you should be proactive with that. You can control your fixed income strategy. I see a lot of clients. Uh, this is an area where we see a lot of clients deficient. You know, mm -hmm. we we see an over we see clients overestimating their risk tolerance, and so they're deficient with their fixed income portion or their bond portion. They're too aggressive because they overestimate the amount of volatility that they can effectively endure. Uh, and then when the markets tank, they start changing a prudent plan. And then they fall further and further behind. You see this with clients who basically, when the markets contract, they just take all their money, they sell all, sell out of the markets, and then they park all their money in cash. You know, well, we not see this with people training too, right? Like you might be on a good training regimen, and let's say third week for whatever reason there's a dip, meaning that your body is in the adaption phase, and then you then and then you go into an alarmist state, thinking that the program is not working and that you're in a decline, and then you switched gears when if you stuck around one more week. You would have started seeing the turnaround. Right. You would have hit the turning point. So a lot of people quit right before the turning point. Absolutely. 
And that and that's not the way to implement an investment strategy, right? Because right. it produces the exact opposite results you're looking for. Yeah. The financial markets ultimately they tell a very powerful positive story over long periods of time. Right. So mm -hmm. to be able to stay the course is the key, and a fixed income strategy is part of that. So what we generally recommend with clients is to you know have a, a thoughtful fixed income plan short-term maturities, high-quality bonds, the role of your fixed income strategy should effectively be to dampen the volatility associated with that equity stock market investing and ultimately to reduce the risk and reduce that bumpy ride along the way. Um, another example of a factor that you can control is rebalancing. You know, If your portfolio drifts from that initial investment policy that you created, then you can bring it back uh, to where your investment policy dictates it should be which means sort of um, sometimes selling the winners and buying the losers or the other way around. You'd bring that portfolio back uh, from its drift. And so these are a bunch of things or examples of a bunch of things that you can control. So be conscientious of trying to do too much of the things that you can't necessarily control and focus on the things that you can control. I think people and, have a tendency to get overwhelmed by what they can't control, whether it's investing or other areas of life when the obvious thing to do is to focus on what you can control, but it seems like there's a disconnect often. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. So another uh, concept, and guys, I, I have so much material here, so you, when you guys feel that it's it's appropriate to uh, conclude this, just let me know because I could share so many strategies with folks. Well, if you, um, if you, if you hear a snoring sound, that's my dog. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I know a lot of this can uh, get a little thick, but... No, no, it's interesting stuff. I mean, if it's boring to you, then that's a problem, honestly, right. because it, it shouldn't be boring to you. If you're an adult listening to this show... This should be something that you find very interesting. It should get your mind going right now and make you start asking yeah. yourself some serious questions like, okay, what am I doing currently? You know, yeah. am I making the right decisions? Or, oh, I thought I was doing the right thing. But now Rohit just pointed out that, okay, I'm messing up right here. So now you should be asking yourself, okay, what do I do next? So Absolutely. <laughs> because I think a lot of people don't plan stuff. They just hope for the best. Or they just wing it. And, and that, yeah, they're just winging it. You that's know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. You know? They're winging it. They're just hoping for the best. Like, oh, things will work out. Yeah, it'll work. Positive thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like, no, positive actions. Yeah, exactly. Not positive thoughts. <laughs> no, it's all it's all in the planning and implementation, you know, much mm -hmm. like everything else. Well, why don't I change gears and talk about something different like debt? Um, okay. That's something that is. Oh that's man! Oh cool. man! <laughs> it's like it's, it's almost to the point where I'm like, can you really cover this in like ten minutes, man? Because <laughs> because honestly, all this other like everything we've talked about up until this point, it seems like it's one of those things, that, in my opinion, that should come after we talk about addressing debt, because especially in this country, because this is a yeah. very debt rich. <laughs> there's a paradox to use right there, country. <laughs> you know? Absolutely. Yeah, and I mean, I could literally. You know, spend hours talking about hundreds of different strategies, but I'm trying to cherry pick those that you know uh, would be most beneficial or resonate with the most people. But when talking about debt, most financial planners, what I hear and see in the media is they categorize debt in terms of good debt versus bad debt. Yeah, and right. I'm not opposed to that categorization. However, I've got a different sort of take on debt in general, and that is that, you know, at some point, we should all aspire to be simply debt free. And, you know, it, it, regardless of the financial ramifications, I mean, I don't 
uh, I, I support the, the, the good debt versus bad debt, the, the interest rates and the mathematical sort of justification for you know why some folks might want to carry a long mortgage. I don't disagree with it, but looking at debt in sort of a deeper uh, psychological view, you know, there are non-financial reasons to simply eliminate debt, and I'm a big proponent of doing so because my philosophy on debt is that debt is much like any other obligation. Right. It effectively, it 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 affects your thought process. It affects your response to certain things. It. I'll give you an example. I think it affects your confidence. I think debt, to a large extent, is modern-day slavery, right? Yeah, How can you is. be free when you owe someone money? Exactly. exactly. Like I, have, I have neighbors who are like, yeah, I own my house. I'm like, do you still have a mortgage? They're like, yeah. Then I'm like, then you don't you own, own the house. house. <laughs> <laughs> you own the house when you don't owe anyone for it. The bank owns your house right now, and then you're paying them. And if so you have an HOA, you'll you never own your house. So that's another thing, because as soon as you do something they, you know, the HOA gets pissed off about, they can take your house. So guess what? You don't own a house. Yeah. <laughs> so. It's interesting. When I was a kid, my dad used to sing a song uh, before he'd go out the door every day. He would say, <laughs> you know, I owe, I owe. So off to work I go. And um, I never forgot that, because I asked him later in life when I got older, I said, you know, that if I simply never owe anybody anything, then uh, I can pretty much do whatever I want, right? <laughs> you don't have to go anywhere. You can stay home. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but, but there is some um, there is some validity to that in that when you're obligated by debt, you sort of got to get up and take care of that obligation, whereas eliminating debt does sort of liberate folks. Yeah. I see this with clients when we look at – I'll give you some concrete examples because I think this is, will be in, interesting and insightful. People don't talk about it. Yeah. You know, When I have clients who um, sort of are timid in marketing or are you know, a little gun-shy when it comes to growing their business because they're so conscientious of – you know, the, 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 the business loan, the practice loan, the home loan, you know, they're constantly thinking about the next payment. They don't want to take the necessary risks that are involved to grow a business aggressively. What happens is when we remove the debt and all of a sudden they have that feeling of liberation, those clients who are conservative by nature because of the debt now all of a sudden become much more aggressive. And what happens is by getting rid of the debt, they become more aggressive and start generating greater incomes, sometimes significantly more income, because they're completely uninhibited, if you will. They're right, liberated, right. Right? right? They don't have to deal with the obligation. It's almost like taking a private company public. You know, all of a sudden you were completely independent, you're running a private company, and now all of a sudden you've got to answer to the stockholders or deal yeah. with the right. directors. I've, right. I've always wondered why some companies even bother going public. I mean, that, that's probably like another two hours. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'll tell you, some of them really, really regret it uh, if it wasn't for the right reasons. And um, you have to think about debt. And the reason I bring it up in this way is when you think about debt, you have to think about it both in financial terms and in non-financial terms. So there may not always be a financial justification uh, to get rid of the debt. But what about the other benefits of getting rid of the debt, right? What about that person that feels liberated, that's more aggressive in business now, uh, that doesn't feel like they have any obligations holding them back? 
you know, these all have to be considered when looking at debt. So my general, you know, sort of thought on this is we should all aspire at some point to, to become debt free simply because it just adds a degree of uh, a liberating effect, uh, if you will. And it helps with cash flow. Well, I mean, it's kind of like someone who has had excess weight for a long time, and then you lose it, and you're healthier. That's liberating as well, right? Right? You're yeah, healthy, you're energetic. I mean, being strong and healthy, and having a vibrancy and energy—that's very liberating, and that's going to improve your business or anything else you're trying to take charge of. Trust me, carrying Absolutely. that excess weight—that's more debt. You know, that's one because one thing about it. Look at that. You right. now, you, now you're a slave to the health healthcare system. You're a slave to your insurance company. You know, because now right. you can't get the insurance you really want because you're a high risk or you know you're constantly going to the doctor you're constantly having to buy medication so and that's putting you in financial debt more and more as well so like i said Karen, it's more energy you have to waste just to do simple things walk like walk up the walk stairs over. you know yeah, exactly. <laughs> you're taxing your heart so you know so taxing you know <laughs> so, yeah that's exactly right you know there are examples where debt can be advantageous so i don't want to discount this again everything i'm sharing is are, are just general rules of thumbs and there's always exceptions but you know example will be with real estate investing Mm-hmm. You know, for those who are really experienced and astute real estate investors, uh, the seasoned pros, if you will, you know, they can in very intelligently use debt to acquire real estate they otherwise wouldn't be able to. Right. Even even in, even in the context of a business, Rohit, I mean, mm-hmm. the only times I've ever gone in debt were for business purposes, right? Like yep. early in my career, there were times where I had to play the credit card shuffle game to stay afloat. But right. that was for business. It wasn't because I went out and bought a new car or I'm going to too many expensive dinners. It was yeah. because it's very calculated. I, I'm not it's, making enough money with my business, so <laughs> I have to be strategic so I can keep moving forward. And then you have a timeline on when you're going to pay this stuff back and, and be free of it all. Absolutely. And, I'll, and what I would add to that is in, in business, sometimes using debt – again, this is more for the seasoned pros, if you will, that really, really know their numbers – um, you know, we see businesses use debt very, very successfully. These are generally the businesses who know their customer acquisition costs cold. They know their numbers, their metrics, their key performance indicators cold. I mean, they really are hyper analytical and they know that in their business, they've got a scenario where, listen, if I put $10 into my business in marketing or advertising, I can acquire $100 of revenue and I can do that all day long. But I simply don't have enough cash on hand to do it more than I than I can. And so if I take out a loan of a million dollars or two million dollars and simply inject it into my business, I know that I'm getting a 10 to 1 return for every dollar I put in. So even after paying the interest on that debt, I can grow my business exponentially. And that might be another example of many that uh, where debt can be advantageous. But generally speaking, personally speaking, you know, it's it's probably prudent to at some point, create a plan to eliminate or reduce all debt, no matter what right. it is, no matter what rate of interest you're getting. Just get rid of it. I, um, I don't even like to take loans to grow my business, which yeah. is like anytime I launch a new product, I'm paying for that myself. I'm not going to the bank and saying, hey, let me get a loan to launch this because my attitude is that why, why, why am I launching a new product if the last four are not profitable yet? Right. I should be, I should be able to use the profit from that to finance the next deal. 
And what's funny is that the bank calls me up all the time, but not because I owe them money. It's because they want to lend me money. Exactly. Hey, you know, so <laughs> constantly going to the mailbox, and there's always this new offer. Like, hey, come in today and get this low rent. I'm like, no, dude, I'm well, good. I have a branch manager <laughs> called me up, and I never yeah. responded. I went into the bank to take care of some paperwork, and she's like, hey, you're a hard guy to get a hold of. I'm like, I'm like yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was like, I'm a young, smart, successful guy. I don't need your money. I want to talk <laughs> to you. <laughs> I was like, where were you guys when I was in debt 12 years ago? Exactly. <laughs> That's exactly Wouldn't even right. talk to you. <laughs> well, let me share two final frameworks, and then okay. maybe we can uh, come to a conclusion here. Yeah, I'll, sure, I'll just good. spend a few minutes on each. And uh, w- one other framework or concept that I that I want to share is a, an awareness of managing the pursuit of upside versus the mitigation of downside. Yeah. And folks don't necessarily ask this question, but when I make them aware of it, it helps them tremendously. And what I mean by that is when we think about investing, when we think about money – most people are focused only on the upside side of the equation. But when you look at Warren Buffett's, you know, Warren Buffett's number one rule of investing is never lose money. Right. Right. <laughs> and his number two rule of investing is never forget rule number one. Right. <laughs> and so his. Yeah, and I think a lot of people have a misconception about someone like a Warren Buffett thinking he must be a real risk taker. And putting it all on the line, and then I think Tony Robbins has a new book out on mm-hmm. investing, and I didn't I didn't buy it because I didn't think it was worth buying, but I did skim through it at the bookstore, and there were some good tips on there. And the one thing he said is that these really good financial advisors and investors they 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 don't take big risks, they play things smart like the way Warren, Warren Buffett plays the game. Yeah, that's and that's a critical piece of the puzzle, and that what what that it what that speaks to is. Not just always thinking about upside, but also thinking about downside. I call right. them financial mistakes, yeah. right? And I tell and I tell people that listen, isn't it interesting that Warren Buffett's rules about investing all have to deal with the management of downside? In other words, yeah. not losing money, right? Like, and and that's something to be very cognizant of because I see this so often in practice. And really what there are is just financial mistakes because financial mistakes and having an awareness of the impact of a financial mistake, it can take years to recover from. Yeah. It can take sometimes decades. I gave the yeah. example of my dad who <laughs> lost his entire retirement due to a concentrated equity position. That was devastating for him. Okay? Yeah. It, it yeah. took decades to rebuild that. And, and And so what I share with clients is, listen – You've got to think about the things that you're doing in terms of not only the potential upside, but also the potential downside. You know, if you're going to go out on a whim and buy a an interest in a new restaurant business, you know, let's talk about the money you could make, but also the amount of money you could lose if it doesn't go as planned, right? <laughs> right. Uh, because you know, there's, a, there's a good chance it won't go as planned either. So that's <laughs> definitely worth being cognizant of. They got you. Got to think about the downside. You yeah. can't ignore it. Um, and you know, so in this context, you have to think about the need for insurance, whether it's health, disability, life, long-term care, business insurance, professional liability insurance. You know, some some may need to work with an estate planner. Uh, most clients don't even have a will. It's surprising to me. Um, they don't have any asset protection plan or wealth transfer plan. So these are items to put on the to-do list if you've never looked into it. Um, another item which which uh, you guys I'll defer to you guys on, which is something I actually see I I've seen it in practice over 15 years because I work with business owners. But I also put in this sort of list here managing your own health because yeah. downside financially you'd be surprised how often I see 
business owners because I work almost 95% exclusively with business owners. And there's something about being a business owner. I don't know what it is, but it puts a unique type of stress on an individual. It's interesting. I had a conversation with a physician um, and, and I would just ask him socially. I said, it's interesting. You know, have, haven't you ever thought about starting your own practice or have you thought about self-employment and building your own uh, practice? And he, he told me, he said, you know what? I've worked so much, so much with, with clients over the, with patients over the years that I've seen the effect <clears throat> that self-employment and being in business can have. And after I've working with patients who are kind of dealing with whether it be burnout or whether it be, um, you know, some sort of, um, I don't, I don't. I don't even know how to define it. I mean, the, 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 well, those are those are people who aren't playing the game right. Because I was under way more stress when I worked for other people. I think it's a personality shift. Also, I mean, I used to think the same way when I looked at business owners when I was a kid. It, it just looked like they worked all the time, seven days a week. Their employees get to go home. They're still working. You you have to play this game with a smarter strategy than that. For the first, let's say, four years of my self-employment career in the fitness business i worked seven days a week worked my ass off teaching courses every weekend you name it that's what it took to build my name and get things going but i was able to pull back in the reins around 2006 and then pick and choose options more so now now my my lifestyle is freer than ever pretty much all of my income is based on my nutrition supplement line to a large extent that's passive and i only have to do a, a few things actively to keep that money train going so I have less stress now than I've ever had, period. I think so it comes think down. It's all about how you roll it. Yeah, it comes down to being efficient again. And, and as Rohit, like he mentioned earlier, it's about having that end goal in mind. Now, a lot of times I don't think a lot of folks who jump into the entrepreneur and, you know, game really think about that end goal in mind other than right. I want to be my own boss. I want to make my own money. I don't want to answer anyone. And I think in terms of what that doctor was saying, I think there's a high percentage of people who take great comfort and being just told what to do and knowing that's going to be – this is their everyday job. They have to come in, do this, do this, Absolutely. and then go back home with no responsibility compared to the business owner who's constantly got to think, okay, marketing. What I got to do next? How am I going it's to build my income? Yeah, exactly. But here's the, here's the kicker. None of that is stressful to me, though. No, no, that gets me excited. It's always, it's always on my mind, but that's not stressful <clears throat> yeah, exactly. at all. I like that it's always on my mind. Yeah. You know, you know that feeling you get right before you're about to give a lecture to a big group of people? A lot of people are panicked in that situation. They're, they're petrified of that i like that feeling yeah well, I think so that's it's, all, it's all it's all it's all it's, it's all your perspective basically is where i'm going yeah i think that's a key insight which is for those that are dealing with those issues and finding themselves stressed by them the question is how do i go from being stressed by them to not being stressed by them well it's possible that it's not for you you know i always exactly. say entrepreneurship is not for everybody it's no. not like i sell everybody on hey man you should quit your job and do this you know each person has to decide for him or herself whether that's the best way to go and for a lot of people it's not the way to go They're, they don't right. they don't have it they don't have the mentality to handle it just like i don't have the mentality to work for someone else now you gotta ask yourself why is this stressing to you and then again i think it also yeah, goes right. back to what we were talking about earlier about the biases as well like is it not for you because, you know, that's what you truly believe or is that what you've always been told? Have you been right. fed that by your parents? Like, you need to get a real job and blah. Oh, you know, that's not for you and blah, blah, blah. Those yeah. people, do you understand? They lose everything and blah, blah, blah. You need some security. <laughs> you know, so exactly. Well, some is, is people that, will say you have to work so much harder to make less, right? That's another one of those exactly. customers out there. And my attitude is, yeah, right. Nobody's going to pay me what I make for myself. <laughs> right. Especially when you look at the amount of time I put in to make it right now, nobody is going to pay me no. that. For any no 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 one no job would pay me that. Also, like when I, I when I did workshops, 
I did everything, right, from get the registrations to book the venues to make sure people show up, the whole shebang. And nobody – the offers <laughs> I would get from other people saying, hey, how much would Wouldn't it cost for you to come man. over here and teach a course? <laughs> None of those people would pay even close to what I made for myself. They would be shocked when I would say, here's how much it's going to cost. And a lot of times that would be lower than what I make on my own. And they'd be like, wow, that's pretty high. I was like, that's nothing. I, I make, This is what I make on my own when I do everything. So I think I think if you're going to be an entrepreneur, you have to take 100% responsibility for your success. And that's a daunting task for a lot of people, just that statement alone. For me, it's exciting. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you have to manage, you have to manage all of that in such a way that – you can be productive and, 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 and not let – don't do it at the consequence of your health, but do it in such a way that you can manage everything uh, simultaneously. Well, there's something to that as well. I mean I almost died from pneumonia from the stress in the, in the first year of my business, but at least half of that was personal life stress, personal life stress at the time, which frankly was paramount, way more so than the, the business stress. So I think that's another part also is that what's your personal life like? You have this right. very – you have this very – not hostile, but just uh, very stressful personal life, that is going to take away a lot from what you can do professionally. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, let me share my final item here, and um, you know, we can, we can kind of wrap it up from there. Because I, I, I've got so much material, I'm just sort of trying to pick and choose here what, what, what might be uh, helpful or beneficial. But let me, let me end with this one last thing because it's so pervasive. And that is that it's almost like the debt item, which is dealing with your largest outflow or expense in life, which is your tax burden. And you know I, what I see in practice a lot is folks aren't necessarily being proactive when it comes to managing that tax burden. And so you know I'll share a couple of items on this that I think would be helpful. But you know the, the first is to be aware that there are three buckets, if you will, when it comes to taxes. And so there's a taxable bucket, there's a tax-free bucket, and there's a tax-deferred bucket. Right, and knowing right. what the buckets are and knowing what opportunities you have available in terms of throughout your career, throughout your life, where your money should go, you've got to put some thought into you know, the development of these buckets. So, for example, the taxable bucket, you, know, you generally, when you sell assets in a taxable bucket, you may pay taxes at a long-term capital gains rate. Uh, the tax-free bucket that would be your, you know, your Roth IRA, your um, your Roth 401k. Those would be examples. Your tax-deferred bucket, you know, this is the most common that people are familiar with IRAs and SEP IRAs and simple right. IRAs, things like right. that. But what I don't see people doing is saying, okay, as a part of my strategy, what do I want to go and where? Where, where, do, what, what do I want to put in each bucket? And how do I want to get them there? And we call that asset location. And so asset location is in part thing when I design a portfolio, you know, I don't want to put tax inefficient assets in the wrong place. I don't want to put taxable assets in the wrong place. Um, you know, for example, you know, REITs are inherently tax inefficient because they distribute all most of their income as, as dividends. Right. And so it would be prudent to put that in a tax deferred or tax free bucket. You know, similarly it would be <clears throat> imprudent to put municipal bonds which throw out tax free income in a tax free or tax deferred bucket. And so you've got to think about how you want to sort of structure your assets in these three buckets in terms of where you want them to go. Another thing I see with taxes is a lot of people justify poor financial decisions. I call it letting the tax tail wag the dog. 
you know, and you don't want to let the tax tail wag the dog. You know, example would be um, you go out and you find a house you want to buy and, you know, you're you know, you're overpaying for it. But you justify it by saying that, hey, listen, you know, I'm going to be able to write off the interest on this big mortgage <laughs> on my taxes, you know. And so you're now you're making a poor economic decision by justifying it with a tax benefit, you know, and in some instances, tax benefits should be at the forefront. You know, if you haven't thought about this before, if you haven't put it in that perspective, then you won't really have a lot of uh, guidance in terms of internally to figure out where you want to locate your assets, because a lot of this has to to each their own, right? People have different opinions about where tax rates are going, where they'll be in retirement. And so, you know, once you get clarity on where your opinions are with respect to choosing your own tax rate in the future, you can better determine, again, beginning with the end in mind, where you want to put your assets. And this is a critical decision because taxes are the largest detractor of wealth. And um, if you can manage your taxes properly throughout your lifetime, they can make huge differences. I mean, huge differences on terminal wealth and ultimately the amount of money that you accumulate and uh, build for yourself. So I think that's probably a good stopping point. Um, I've got a bunch more stuff, but we obviously don't have time to go into it. So hopefully folks listening got some nuggets of insight and um, I'll just share uh, my uh, website. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, or more. Um, I've got a bunch of free resources and reports uh, and white papers, if you will, for those who are actually interested in diving deeper into these topics and want to see some of the, the data and the specifics and some of the numbers and you know some of the things that Mike asked about, you know, how often and to what extent, to what percent do active investments outperform indexing and vice versa. You can find out all about those types of things in my free reports at uh, theassetclassdifference.com. So if you go to www.theassetclassdifference.com, you can download those free resources. Uh, they're extremely helpful, and obviously, if anybody has any questions, you can always reach out to me one on one if you have any further questions. And where can they where can they reach you personally? Let's say if they want to discuss hiring you, um, they can go to callrafinancial.com. That's K-A-L-R-A financial.com. And just click on free consultation, and you can schedule yourself right into my calendar. All right. Sounds All good, right. man. Well, hey, appreciate it. It's a ton of great information, very comprehensive, and we'll look forward to having you come back at some point. Yep. Thanks, guys. I really Thank appreciate you. being on the show. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Rohit. Take care, Take care man. Take care. All right, bye. All right, everyone. That's my good friend, Rohit Kalra. Make sure you check out his information. And this is one of those episodes you're probably going to have to go back and listen to a few times. Yeah, Take some notes. Yeah, don't just listen to this one like directly on iTunes. Go ahead and download <laughs> this one. Put it yeah. in a place that you will not lose it on your computer or on your phone or whatever. And, and go over this time and time again because, again, we're in that time of the year where a lot of people really increase their debt. Okay, and these, these last couple of months right here. And we're about when January 1st is right around the corner, which means... It's tax season. It's about to get started. So all these things can help you prepare, be better prepared for that season coming up. Yeah, and, and it's tis the year to increase your debt and then also <laughs> increase the surplus in stored body fat is another thing we see. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, my studies have shown that uh, you know getting becoming a fatter, a, a bigger fat ass is a direct correlation <laughs> when your debt becomes fatter. <laughs> so if you slim the debt, you slim the debt on your ass as well. So no, this is a study. It's a science. No, science, bro. It's science. <laughs>
<laughs> well, I mean, think about it. You're you're expending if you if you spend less money on garbage food, not only are you going to have more money in the bank, you're going to have less body fat on your body. So mm. there you go. It's a it's a two for one right it's a, there. It's a win win. I call that a great investment. Okay. Getting, a, getting a solid return right there, man. Now, one thing you can do to invest in yourself, that's another win-win situation, is you can use that coupon code LLA, get 10% off the best nutrition supplements around. My aggressive strength testosterone booster, which also has ashwagandha now, which is an incredible energy, adrenal energy product. So check that out at MikeMahler.com. Also, my estrogen blocker. A lot of you guys are in the season of bitch tits and gawks right now. And make 2016 the year that you turn back into a man because right now you're halfway to having an organic sex change. So you can block that process (laughs) by taking three caps of EC. (laughs) Use that coupon code LLA, stuck up. And get make sure 2016 is a great year. And how about with you, man? And you can also head over to newwarriortraining.com and use that same coupon code and invest in yourself by getting into my weight management one-on-one course. So, again, investing in yourself by investing right. in a course that helps improve yourself. How about that? That's been a the theme of the show so far. And well, when also, you think about it, Sincere, they use your program. They're going to get healthier. They're going to have more energy, and that's going to make them more productive in whatever else they're trying to do. Exactly. Like So that's a win-win right there. So look, folks, <laughs> head over to either one of those websites using that code. It's You're the winner here. You're the winner here. So we all win together like that. And also, you can also head over to patreon.com slash LLA podcast and invest in this show because you get so you're already getting so much from it. Why not invest in it? Don't be a thief. Quit stealing. Okay. Quit just taking information because you won't value the information if you're not investing in the information. If you're just taking free information, you're not going to do much with it. Most people don't do anything when you give it to them for free. You give it to them free. They just, what they do is they just accumulate, they become hoarders. So stop being an episode hoarder and actually start taking action with the things that you hear on the show by investing in it. So once you put something in, you're definitely going to put it into action. So you can do that by heading over to Patreon and there's a monthly investment right there that you make by supporting this show. All right. All right, everyone. We'll see you next time. All right. Take care, folks.